Well, good evening, family. How are you tonight? Woo! Hey, let's go ahead and stand up and worship our King and friend Jesus together. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I dream from, oh, is my song. Let the King of my heart be the shadow. You are, you are good, good, oh, you are good, good, oh, you are good, you're good, oh, you are good, The king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, always my song. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days, always my song. You are
of the goodness of God. Sing it together, church, all my life. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so. Father, it's a joy to come in this space and worship you tonight. And we ask in this time that you stir up our heart and our minds, our affections for you. Thanks for the chance to gather with our brothers and sisters in this space. Tune our hearts to sing and know of your grace this evening. Amen. Well, friends, you're welcome to take a seat. And if you would, welcome up my dear friend, Ashley Covert. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pay for PR like that. That's wonderful. Hey, guys, it's great to be here with you tonight. Um, my name's Ashley Covert. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm the communication coordinator here. Um, I get to really tell you all the information. But sometimes it's from here, sometimes it's from the webpage, through the app, through sorts of various medias. But anyway, um, we're really glad you're here tonight. Um, I have the opportunity, I don't know if you see two mics here, I don't have double the announcements, I have the opportunity to invite some of my friends up to the stage. Um, about a month ago, we sent five student trips on spring break um, across the country. Guys, come on up here with me. Um, across the country, uh, here in Northwest Arkansas, and then coast to coast. But um, you guys had the opportunity to pray for them, donate to their trips, and so we wanted to tell you a little bit about what they did. So this is my friend Leah Blanchard, and she went on the SOAR middle school trip. Now, Leah, this was your first mission trip, what did you find challenging and what did you find surprising about your time? So yes, this was my first mission trip. And so I went not really knowing what to expect. Um, and I was really surprised to find how well the kids listened and paid attention. And they were really engaged in our discussion and our Bible stories. And for little kindergartners, that's kind of surprising because sometimes they don't listen the best. But that was really sweet to just how see how much they enjoy um, like community and Bible studies and stuff like that. Um, it was just such a sweet time to be ministering into these lives and sharing with them the love of Jesus. Awesome. Thank you. And this is Becca Weber. She went to Portland. And Becca, you did this trip with your mom and your brother. So what was it like serving with your family? Yeah, so um, this was obviously like my last mission trip with the youth ministry here. And just going into it, I was like sad because it is my last one. But like she said, I got the opportunity to go with my brother and my mom. And it just really like shaped our relationship. I think it grew it in a lot of ways because working with the homeless up there and just people and getting to come back and share with my dad and my other brother about it was just really encouraging. And I wouldn't give it up for the world. So. Awesome. And this is Annalise Cameron, and she went to Tacoma. And Annalise, this trip, you kind of partnered with CR. So what was the experience? Had you um, been involved with CR here at Fellowship, or what was your takeaway? 
Um, yeah, the experience was like really surreal because it was my first experience with CR. Like I knew what it was, but I didn't have a good like understanding. I didn't know it was a CR trip. I was just like, let's see what's up in Washington. So I put it as my first choice. Um, but it was just really incredible because I learned a lot about like God's character and his love for us and like how like deep it is and like I can't even comprehend it. And I learned a lot about myself and how I like cope with things in actually an unhealthy way and how I can bring God into the hard times. And yeah, it was just incredible. Awesome, awesome. And then Ben Reinebo, you went to New York City and one of the partnerships there with Crew Inner City, you got to spend time with a, a guy who had a pretty incredible testimony. What were your takeaways from that? Well, the guy who I met, his name was Jimmy, and he's actually up there, right, like, second line, top right, <laughs> top left. But uh, he had an amazing testimony. It was uh, so wonderful to hear. But the biggest thing that I learned from listening to him was that it doesn't matter the sins in your life, the struggles that you've been through. With Christ, you are wiped clean. None of that defines you, for there's only one who defines you, and that is God. It makes you newest, uh, widest snow, and it was really heartwarming to hear that. Awesome. And then Ryan Self, you went to LA, but this was your second time to go on that trip. So what were your takeaways from trip one versus trip two? Yeah, so um, they were both really, really awesome, obviously, just in different ways. Um, last year, I went into it, you know, struggling really hard with a lot of tough things in my life. Um, and then walked out with a life-changing experience that has probably altered how I walk with God for the rest of my life, you know? So obviously I had high expectations for the next one. Um, this year, though, it was equally as special. Um, not quite as much personal movement um, in my heart, but for me this year, it was a lot of just stepping back and watching how God is moving and the people in my team and everyone we're working with, and it was just as special, you know, because both trips I got to see God's faithfulness. Um, last time it was in my life, this time it was in others, so, yeah. Awesome. Could you guys give these students a round of applause? If, if you have a student that isn't involved with FSM Mosaic, would really encourage you uh, to look into that. One of the opportunities you'll have um, for kids going into ninth through 12th grade is we have Antioch. It's the summer discipleship program. Um, some of these guys have participated in it. I think they would give it a rave review. Um, the registration QR code is there on the screen, um, but we would really highly encourage your students to be involved if they're not yet. Um, next thing I wanna talk about is connection. Oh, no, we're gonna talk about serving. Um, we always have an opportunity to serve, and it's one of the number one ways you can get connected here at Mosaic. Um, that QR code will, again, take you to the news page where you'll see our serve form. Um, we have opportunities with the worship, tech, kids and student teams, and then with our hospitality team as well. So if you're looking for a place to fit in, um, serving is gonna be the best way to get involved. Next piece of connection. Uh, so through the month of May, we're gonna try something that we are needing your help with. So we recognize that when people come in, it's still a big building, it's a large church, big congregation, it's easy to slip in and slip out, um, but we don't want people to come and us not know who they are. So during the month of May, we are going to try and 
be as hospitable as we can, not only staff, um, but for our congregation as well. So we have a few different ways we're going to do that, but we just want to put it on your radar. So each weekend in May, we are going to be connecting with one another, and that's all going to culminate um, the last weekend of May when we do our family picnic. So we'll have more details about that uh, as it gets closer, but I just want to put it on your radar now. So before we continue in worship, Becca, will you pray for us? with me. Um, Lord, we just come to you right now um, with grateful and thankful hearts. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be able to serve you wherever we are, whether it's here or other places. Um, we just pray that you would be in and work in and through our lives every, every day, Lord, in your name. Amen. Awesome. Well, family, can we go ahead and stand this evening? And uh, if you've been with us, we're in a, a risen series. We're looking at the, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And uh, so we just wanted to take some time tonight, and even as we sing, just to sing songs about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And what I'd like for you to do in this moment is go ahead and look at the faces and the stories around you. Just take a, take a read of who's standing next to you, who's behind you, because each individual comes into this room, has a, has a story, has a journey. And then after you look at them once, would you look at them again, but this time with a prayer that the Holy Spirit would just do something that whatever God has in store for that person tonight, would you just look around the room? And then would you sing these songs, not only for our hearts, but for the hearts of the brothers and sisters next to you? Sing this with us. In Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still and striving cease, my comforter. of Christ I stand in Christ in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless pain this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on the cross
practices we do around here is our offering. If you're brand new, like you're visiting, don't worry about it. Let that plate go by. If you give online, our friend Rodney Holmstrom, he says, give it the two tap. So when the plate comes by, just tap it twice. And uh, so if you see Rodney and he does that, that's why. But our heart in that is that we want to be generous as our God is generous. And so we come in this place, not just to to sing and to give money and to go about our days, to, to to actually become people who are like Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is is we pray this prayer every week. And hopefully you you even get to the point where you're memorizing it by now and you can quote it and say it. One of our mission trip teams of kids, they actually sat around a room one night and they had a video of it and they're just screaming the offering prayer (laughs) by memory. But our hope is that not that we would just let these be empty words or that it would kind of force people or coerce people into giving, but it would be true of our hearts that we'd be a generous people, just like our God. So would you pray this with me? Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary and hope for the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely, Lord, and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord, and nothing we can give could match your great gift to us of your Son and your Spirit. Amen. Our friend and king we sing salvation 
Isn't he so good? Yeah. Well, if you would remain standing for the reading of God's word and welcome up our friends, Matt and Aaron Tolson. 
Hello, Forever family. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus. I struggle with sexual addiction, anger, and anxiety, and my name is Matt. I uh, serve in CR and have done that now for the last five and a half years, and we've been at Mosaic uh, that long as well. And I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I struggle with anxiety and control. My name is Aaron, and I serve in the toddler class here at Mosaic. So now we're going to hear um, from the word of the Lord, Luke 24, 36 through 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. So as we continue in our Risen series, um, it's appropriately time because we, we, in our annual calendar, are in the same time of year that the disciples would have been in, in, in the weeks following Easter. That there were 40 days that Jesus spent on earth after his resurrection explaining the significance of what had taken place. And so you have this, this seismic event that completely confounded the expectations of everyone who was following Jesus. And, and when we look at the life of Jesus, those three years that he was teaching, every time he tried to tell people what was coming, I'm, I'm going to be handed over to the leaders, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again, they looked at each other and said, what is he talking about? That doesn't make sense. They, they, they had no category for what he said was coming. So then when it happened, he had to come back around and, and explain, no, I actually meant what I said, and here's why that matters. And so we have this series of time, this, this period of time for 40 days, what, what we've called the resurrection appearances, where Jesus, resurrected, comes back to his apostles and teaches them and explains why everything that, that took place had to take place, and he connects the dots. Wouldn't it be great to have those sermons from the 40 days that Jesus taught them? I'm actually convinced we didn't lose them. I think that the very things that the apostles go out and preach in the book of Acts and the things that they write down in their letters to the churches, that's them passing on what Jesus taught them. That message isn't lost to us. All the things that the New Testament instructs the church to make a priority are the things that Jesus explained the significance of during his time 
with the disciples. So we continue on in the series uh, trying to make sense of how does the resurrection, that event we celebrate on Easter, change everyday life for us as believers. So we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 24, right where we, picked, right where we left off last week. Uh, we had Colin teach on that Emmaus Road story where Jesus showed up to two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem like the movement was over. And, and, and you can understand why. Like, for them, if a Messiah is supposed to lead Israel in victory, and he goes to Jerusalem to be crowned, and he gets killed, movement over, right? Go home. It's, it's done. And so th that was the ultimate surprise for them to find out he was still alive. And our passage begins with the, with the sentence, while they were still talking about this. What is the this? Well, it's the two disciples Jesus met with that we learned about last week went back to Jerusalem and told everybody. They told them, we had seen, we've seen Jesus. And so they're hearing them explain this, and in the middle of the conversation, I mean, it, it, it feels a little bit like a really good prank, doesn't it? That Jesus just poof, shows up in the room and says, hey guys. I mean, they're in the middle of hearing this story, and he shows up and says, hi. Now, I don't know in translation that peace be with you um, it sounds really formal in Greek, and I don't know if possibly what he actually said in the original language was just shalom, which is, it means peace, but it's also just the, the everyday casual greeting for a Jew. So maybe it was a really formal peace be with you, or maybe he just showed up and said, hey guys, in the middle of this moment, there he is standing right in their midst. And what is their response? They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Now, here's a funny thing that you will hear when you hear historians and scholars, uh, typically non-believers, talk about this part of Scripture. What they will tell you is that ancient people were naive. Naive is a scholarly code word for stupid, okay? So what they will tell you is ancient people were really stupid, and they believed that they would believe any, any story you told them. If you tell them somebody rises from the dead, they're all, they're all so dumb, they're going to believe that right out of the gate. Ancient people were not stupid, okay? They were actually just as intelligent, believe it or not, as you and me. Um, C.S. Lewis has a word for this, he calls it a phrase, he calls it chronological snobbery. And it's when we assume that we are so much smarter today than ancient people were. Okay, ancient people weren't stupid. They knew that dead people did not come back to life. Now, they did believe there was a spiritual realm. They believed that there were angels and spirits, and that was part of their worldview. And by the way, most humans alive today also believe there's a spiritual realm. It is actually a very narrow, small majority that believes in strict materialism, that there's nothing but what you can see and touch in the world. Most people believe in a spiritual realm, and they absolutely believed in a spiritual realm. That did not make them naive or stupid. That actually made them like most humans who've ever lived. So when they saw the appearance of their friend in the room with them, they weren't stupid or naive. They had no category for he came back from the dead. That was unbelievable. So as their minds are trying to make sense of what they saw, the only plausible explanation they had was we're seeing some kind of spirit because dead people don't come back from the dead. So they were trying to reason out their experience with the only thought category they had. This is some kind of ghost. This is some kind of spirit. That should show you they weren't naive. They 
had a sense experience that they could not understand. They saw in the room with them their dead friend. This also uh, disproves another idea that you will hear some people explain. And they, they will tell you the resurrection was never meant to be described as a historical event. That it was really after Jesus died, they were all oh so disappointed. And then some of the disciples started to realize, you know what? Jesus lives on in his teaching in us. The spirit of Jesus lives on if we're loyal to what he said. And so all of those ideas of resurrection are just something that as they started teaching about Jesus continuing on in the spirit, they had almost like a mass hallucination where everyone really started believing he had risen from the dead. The way this story is described is it is, it is trying to dispel all of that and say, despite our thoughts they were naive and stupid, they actually were very reasonable people and they knew what they were seeing didn't make sense. They knew they had no category for what was going on right in front of them. And so whenever they see Jesus show up, we're told that immediately they were startled. They thought they saw a ghost. And look at Jesus' words. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Uh, Jesus is calling out their doubt and unbelief on the spot. Once again, if these are naive, stupid people, they're not going to have doubts. They're just going to believe everything. And yet, in Luke chapter 24, the chapter 4 that tells us, the chapter that tells us about the resurrection and Jesus appearing, records over and over again the unbelief of his followers. Look at how many times it happens in Luke 24. Right now, right here, Jesus calls out and says, why do you not believe? Um, when we back up a little bit, when we go to the beginning of the chapter, and we look at the first resurrection appearance, we have the women who've come to the tomb, and it says, and the others, uh, that, that when they came back from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and all to the, the others. So the women go back to the disciples, and they're reporting that they've seen Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Think about this. These, this is Jesus' 11 closest followers, the people who would be the leaders of the church. They rejected, if we can put it this way, they rejected the gospel the first time they were told about it. They said, I can't believe that. That can't possibly be true. Then, in, in this next uh, encounter on the Emmaus Road, when Jesus is talking to the two disciples that we looked at last time, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. First encounter, the women come to the disciples, they don't believe. Then Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he looks at those two disciples, they don't believe. And then finally, here he is appearing in the room with them. They have Jesus in the flesh right in front of them. And when he's finished talking to them, he shows them his hands, his feet, and they still did not believe. Now, this time you can see something starting to break because it says they did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Something is starting to break through. It's like they're, they're hesitant to believe, but they're also starting to get excited that maybe this could be real. And one of the things I think this record of the disciples struggling to believe tells us is that unbelief and doubt is actually a normal part of faith. 
I don't know about you, but I tend to imagine that real Christians, you know, the ones that are, that are really trusting the Lord, never struggle with doubt. They just trust the Lord all the time, and they're really solid, and they're ready to go. And there must be something deeply wrong with me that I have doubts all the time. That I will have these moments of panic where I question if my faith is real. And I can tell you, in my own experience, I've recognized, I, I, I experienced three different kinds of doubt. Don't, not only do I doubt, I actually have several different flavors of doubt that I walk through. Um, the first one, I'm going to call intellectual doubt. And intellectual doubt looks like me just wrestling with, can this even be true? And I will have this so many times, whether it's that I read about something historically, or I, I wrestle with something scientifically, or I hear someone who just mocks what I believe, and I feel this kind of panic of, wait, do I really believe this thing that I'm staking my life on to be true? I'll experience intellectual doubt. I'll also experience relational doubt. Um, and, and this comes less in whether or not I believe the faith is true. It's more the question of, can I really trust God? Um, this is when it comes to me asking, can I really trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do and be faithful in the way he says he's going to be faithful? I experience this with my loved ones. Like, can I really trust God with my child and with my child's future? Can I trust God to take care of my wife? I, I, can, I struggle with this with things about the future. Can I trust God to provide? Some of you might deal with, with difficult medical diagnoses. When you're walking through something really hard, can I really trust God with this? Even if the outcome doesn't go the way I want? Especially if you've been deeply hurt. If you've experienced deep grief or betrayal or pain, your doubt might look less like an intellectual doubt and more like just a, a difficulty to trust again. To draw near to God and believe that he can handle your heart and he can take care of you. And finally, the one that I probably struggle with the most is a kind of self-doubt. And this is where it turns inward. And I wonder, have I done enough? Is my faith real or have I been faking it this whole time? What if I haven't really confessed my sins deeply enough to be forgiven? What if I haven't really trusted the Lord enough? Now, the ironic thing about this is even though it looks like it's doubting self, it's still actually doubting God. Because God says, I'll take care of all of that. And instead of me looking at God as one that can be trusted with my sin, I'm actually analyzing if my own faith is good enough to save me. And one of the things that I think that, that God wants to show us through the story of his disciples is they struggled with doubt. This is actually really hard to believe. When you think about the word incredible, what does that word actually mean? What does the word credible mean? It means it's something reasonable to believe in, something that you can rationally accept. Of course, that's a credible witness. That's a credible idea. So what does it mean to say God might do something incredible? That if we believe we worship a supernatural God, that means he might and will choose to do things that are hard for us to believe. That's actually what happens when you come encounter, when you have an encounter with the living God, is he's going to do things that stretch your credulity, that stretch your capacity to trust him. 
To say I won't believe anything incredible, I won't believe anything that's hard to believe is ruling out the possibility of God ever working in your life. If you want a God who never challenges your ability to believe, then you want a God who will never do anything incredible. You want a God who will never challenge or stretch you. And so in fact, working through doubt is a necessary part of growing in faith. I have talked many times about my deep disdain for exercise. And one of the things I discover again and again is that I will never get stronger and I will never build endurance without experiencing weakness and fatigue. The only way to make a muscle stronger is actually to push it to a point that it feels weak, that it cannot go any further. The only way to grow endurance is actually to run until the point that your body feels like it can't go any further. The only way to make a heart stronger is to stretch it, to strain it, to make it work to build endurance. That's how growth happens. Why would we expect that faith is any different? We will never grow in our capacity to trust God unless we face the terrifying experience of doubt. And we see that pattern throughout the scriptures. That is what God does over and over again. Think about when, when God, if, you, if you've heard the story of when God calls Abraham, he looks at Abraham and his wife Sarah and he says, I'm, I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you, and when you get there, I'm going to bless you. Now, most of us stop reading right there, but you know what happens in the next verse in Genesis chapter 12? It says there was a, right after Abraham and Sarah get to the promised land, there's a famine. Now run that through Abraham and Sarah's mind. God says, hey, if you'll trust me, I'm going to take you to this place where I'm going to bless your socks off and you're going to have everything you need. And they go, okay, God, this is going to be awesome. We're going to this wonderful, beautiful land. And they get there and they almost starve to death. How in the world would God let that happen? Why would God let that happen? The very next thing Abraham does after the famine is he abandons the promised land and goes to Egypt in search of food. He didn't have the capacity to trust God when he had a hard moment. He goes to Egypt with the wife that God says, I'm going to bless your family. And he recognizes that she's pretty and Pharaoh might want to kill him to take his wife. Unless that sounds like a crazy story, go read about what David did when he saw a pretty married woman, right? That's what kings do is they kill husbands to take the wives they want. So Abraham gets scared and lies, says that Sarah's his sister, and literally sex traffics his wife into Pharaoh's harem because he doesn't trust God to take care of him. And God intercedes in a dream and sends his wife back to him. Over and over again, every single time, Abraham encounters one of these difficult moments where he says, I don't know if I can trust God here. He hits the eject button and bails. Until after he had been walking with God for almost 50 years, and God had stretched him and stretched him and stretched him, and every time Abraham said, I can't trust you anymore. And God kept bringing him back, bringing him back. So finally, Abraham is with the son that he had been promised, Isaac. And God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your boy. The one that I promised you, the one that I'm going to do everything through. Abraham takes him up the mountain, is prepared to sacrifice Isaac, and God says, stop. 
Don't touch the boy. The book of Hebrews explains Abraham's reasoning, and he says, Abraham reasoned that God could bring the dead back. Abraham had seen God be so faithful so many times that his way of reasoning had changed. And he said, well, if God promised me that he's going to bless the nations through my son Isaac, and that through Isaac there's going to be an entire nation of Israelites following me, and now he says it's time for Isaac to die, then the only reasonable thing is that he'll bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham doesn't have that kind of faith all the way back in Genesis 12. The thing that brought Abraham to have that kind of trust in God was failing to trust him over and over again and God showing himself to be faithful. So when we have these moments where we face these doubts, the challenge is that the only way to grow is not to hit the eject button and to bail, but actually press into the doubt and towards Jesus. And that is the crucial thing that we have to be able to do with our doubts. First of all, no, you are not alone when you deal with doubt. My guess is everyone in here has done, dealt with and regularly deals with at least one of those three different kinds. So the question becomes, how are we going to respond to it? A very trendy idea right now is the idea of deconstruction, the idea that everybody's tearing apart the faith they were, giving, they were given as children and building something new back up. And let me just give a challenge to anyone in here who's in that place where they're, they're questioning the faith that was given to them and, and trying to figure out how to walk forward in that. There are a lot of things that need to be deconstructed. If we've been taught things about God that aren't true, we need to tear that down. We need to jettison the things that we've been told about God that aren't real and aren't true. But the way to do that is to go to God for direction in his word. If one of the great lies that we can fall into is that thinking the answer is to try to be neutral and objective and work things out on our own. The problem with that idea is none of us are neutral and objective. Especially when we are trying to be neutral and objective with regard to a God who actually deserves our love and loyalty. Imagine if I said, hey, I'm just trying to rethink my relationships and I'm just going to be neutral and objective with regard to my wife. I'm going to treat her the same as every other woman. That wouldn't be neutral. That would be betrayal, right? That would be a betrayal of my wife because she has a claim to an exclusive loyalty of mine. I remember sitting with a college student um, who had mentored and discipled, and he was going through his own deconstruction moment, and he told me that he was, he said, I, I don't, I'm not walking away from God. I'm just in a phase of trying to figure things out, and so I'm neutral and objective. And I said, okay, so what does it mean to be neutral and objective to God? And he said, well, I'm just not making up my mind right now. And I said, okay. If God exists, does he have a claim on your life? Yes. If God exists, does he deserve your worship? Yes. Are you giving him any of those things right now? And he said, no. I said, that's not neutrality. If God exists, that's rebellion. And actually choosing to consistently stiff arm God will, will harden our hearts against him. So my encouragement to you, Jesus can handle your doubt. 
Jesus can handle your difficulty to believe. Bring it to him. Don't stiff arm him and say, I can figure this out on my own. Bring your doubts and your wrestling to God in the context of community, and let's seek the truth together. And if you're in the room right now, and you're not a Jesus follower, and you're trying to figure out what you believe, my invitation to you would be simply to have an open mind. Be open to the idea that if God exists, he might just want to do something incredible. Something that is hard to believe. That's where the disciples found themselves as they stood with Jesus in the room. And I think what Jesus does next is so incredibly fascinating because after they're struggling to come to terms with what they've just seen, verse 44 says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What did Jesus point to when they were struggling to believe? The scriptures. I have heard so many times, whenever we're with Jesus, we won't need the word of God anymore. I don't know. Right here, people are in the presence of Jesus, and he's still pointing to the word of God. He, the word of God that, that we're told is eternal and unmovable, unshakable. When they are struggling, they have Jesus physically in the room with them. And they're struggling with their doubts and Jesus points them to scripture. To validate what they're seeing right in front of them. So I think the call here in the face of this incredible thing is to come back to scripture again and again to keep leaning in and listening to the word of God and what he has to say and let that begin to shape our minds and our hearts as to what God is doing. Now we need to rewind and go back to the beginning. So there's something I skipped over that uh, is, is necessary to frame the second big idea of what's going on here. And when he, when he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? He then proceeds to correct their thinking about seeing a ghost. And he says, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. Why hands and feet? In one of the parallel passages, we know that he's showing them the scars. He's showing them this is not a ghost. This is not an apparition. The reason it is so significant that the tomb is empty is that it was that nail-scarred body that came back to life. And Jesus is proving that to them by pointing to his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, hey, uh, you got anything to eat around here? Why is Jesus doing that? Well, this feels a little bit why the chicken crossed the road. He probably asked because he was hungry. That tells us something about resurrected Jesus. He had a body of flesh that still needed to eat. Now that might seem obvious, but it is one of the most profound theological truths in the entire scripture. Because when Jesus' body was resurrected, God told us something about the destiny of the entire human race. And that is that the material bodies that we have are good and they are meant 
to last. The material world has value. And God's rescue plan, this is transformative for the disciples' mentality. God's rescue plan is neither a plan of conquest or a plan of escape. Their first idea, the reason the disciples on the road to Emmaus were so disappointed, is they pictured a plan of conquest. Messiah shows up, he raises an army, and he takes Jerusalem back from the Romans. And many of us to this day still have a conquest picture of faith. That our job is to take our country back. It's to take control of things. It's to enforce our beliefs on others with the power of our strength. Jesus doesn't give us a conquest model that is take things over with power and force. He went to go die. But he also doesn't give us an escape model. And and a lot of religions, both then and today, have an escape model of faith. And they basically go like this. Something about this world is bad and wrong. So what we need to do is elevate our spirituality so that we are prepared to leave this world and go on to somewhere spiritual. And one of the biggest problems with that, as a pastor and scholar named N.T. Wright says, is if Jesus' body dies and his spirit leaves, then the enemy of death is not defeated. Death had a victory over Jesus' body. But when Jesus is risen from the dead, he shows us that we really are actually made for this world. And that God's plan is neither a plan of conquest or of escape, it's a plan of new creation. It's a plan of making everything broken new again. Of making our bodies new again and of making this earth new again. That's why at the very end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, we do not see humanity escaping earth to go to heaven. We see God bringing heaven to earth. We see people on this ground, living the life they were always meant to live. I don't know about you, but that's relief to me because I used to think heaven sounded so boring. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I know that's irreverent. But God, this ADHD guy has to work so hard to make it through a 65-minute church service. Like the number of times my wife will swap me when I get my phone out and start doing something during church. She's like, just be here for 65 minutes. You can do it. And if heaven were this eternal singing time, I would be in so much trouble. And I would just be begging Jesus for something to do. I was like, hey, do you have some floors that need to be swept or something? But that's not the destiny that Jesus gives us. Because he resurrected a human body on earth, human bodies are made for earth. So where does that mean Jesus is? is going to reign here on earth. Which means the things we do on earth now matter. They have purpose, every single one of them. I bet no one in that room knew when they were cooking that fish that they were cooking fish to be eaten by Jesus. But suddenly, cooking that fish had spiritual purpose. And all the things we do on earth become opportunities for new creation to show themselves. It rejects the possibility of some kind of sacred, secular divide where there's certain things we do that are spiritual and other things that are just the everyday things of life. 
as people who follow a resurrected Lord, that means that everything we do now has the opportunity to see new creation brought into it. When you teach third graders how to read and do math, that can take on spiritual purpose. When you help someone to do their taxes, when you work on supply chain to make sure a loaf of bread makes its way to Louisiana. Every single details of our life begin to take on significance so that our mission, we don't divide between spiritual things and material things. They have to go together in a holistic picture so that the, the, the answer to what the, does the poor need is not either the good news about Jesus or relief and food. It's both. We're called to a holistic mission that covers the entire spectrum. And all of the gifts that God's given us suddenly have a purpose in every aspect of human life. I often feel so overwhelmed by trying to help how to help needy people because I just don't feel like I have any skills. I don't have any understanding. Um, I don't have what we might call real-world skills. Um, essentially, my professional skill set involves eating food and listening to people talk. Like, really? And so I finally figured out that's about the only thing I have to offer. So when I start thinking about how to help people in need, my greatest strategy that I have, I love McDonald's. I mean, I, like, really love McDonald's. And so whenever I have a free lunch, when I have nothing scheduled, I drive a mile down the road. There's almost always somebody down there asking for help. And I buy a couple of burgers and some fries, and I sit down and say, hey, I'll swap you a meal for a story. Let's eat together, and I just want to hear what's going on in your life. And then I'm just listening. And when you give somebody McDonald's fries, they will tell you everything. It's amazing. <laughs> it is phenomenal. And I'm just listening, and I'm praying. And sometimes there's a connection where I can see a real-world need that they have, and I know someone who can actually help them more than I can. And I can help connect the dot. And sometimes we just enjoy a meal together. And I get to listen. The resurrection of Jesus means that eating french fries and teaching English, playing guitar and working on supply chain, all of it gets brought under the reign of our resurrected Lord and has significance. And what Jesus says at the end of this passage is what launches us into the next two weeks. He concludes and says, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Two more things we got to look at. What is the heart of the mission that we're taking to the nations? And what has the Father promised that's going to enable us to do that? That's what we're going to be talking about the next two weeks. But for tonight, I want us to walk away with one question. What areas of our lives have we separated out from what is spiritual? I encourage you, this week... I'm a visual person. Draw yourself a little pie chart. Carve out the time that you have. What if all of it was spiritual?
What if even getting sleep at night you recognize was spiritual activity because you're recognizing that God gave you a body that needs to be taken care of and that you worship God by choosing to get enough sleep at night? If he is risen, then everything belongs to him and everything has purpose. Lord, that is our desire, that our entire life, every single thing we do would be marked by the purpose of being submitted to your kingdom and that our lives would be filled with worship. So Lord, give us insight. Open our minds to see all the areas that you want to claim lordship over. We love you. We offer all that we are to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And even as we take some time now to respond, uh, I'd encourage you in this moment. This, uh, this song is um, taken straight from the Apostles' Creed at a time where uh, the church was turning to a couple of different beliefs, and uh, this was something they came back to, and it was something that together the church would recite over one another, saying, this is what we believe, and because this is what we believe, this is how we live. And so if you would, as we sing, make these statements not just true for your head, but true for your heart.
just to receive this truth. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And that gives us purpose and meaning even as we leave this place. Hey, if you're new, this is your first time, or if you've been coming for a little bit and haven't met anyone yet, 
I'd encourage you to grab someone next to you and say hi and introduce yourself. But if you're also looking to get connected, uh, as well as just how to serve here, help here, get connected in a small group uh, out in the middle of the foyer, there's a center booth. You can get all that information. As well as if you need prayer, our prayer teams comes up to the front at the end of the service if they can join you in anything. But friends, as we leave this place, could we not just allow the good news of the resurrection to stay in here, but could we go in peace to love and serve the Lord and together we say...